This is a Federal News Network podcast. Efforts to oversee trillions of dollars in pandemic relief spending are running into a familiar problem, persistent gaps in federal spending data. Investigators say Congress can take some actions to make sure it's easier to track how agencies are spending taxpayer dollars. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And what is the latest on initiatives to look into all of these dollars? It sounds like the money got up and went around the world before oversight got its boots laced up. Yes, speed was a priority in getting these relief dollars out the door. And federal oversight offices are now tracking more than $5 trillion in relief money that was spent over the last couple of years. About 90% of those funds have already been obligated. COVID relief spending drove a big increase in improper payments between fiscal years 2020 and 2021. The Labor Department Inspector General now estimates that $163 billion in unemployment insurance payments were distributed as improper payments. And he says a good portion of that could be fraud. That's one of the latest data points we have. And while a major focus has been on issues with state and local unemployment insurance systems, investigators say there are some big issues at the federal level, too. The Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, in one of its latest reports, found 15,000 federal relief grants worth about $33 billion had meaningless descriptions that make it almost impossible to discern how the funds were spent. The chairman of the PRAC is Michael Horowitz, who also serves as the IG at the Justice Department. He testified before a Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee hearing last week and spoke about those award descriptions. Nobody looking at that, not us as oversight professionals, the public looking to see where money went, would have any idea where that money went from looking at that reporting data. That's not what I think Congress intended when they set up the Data Act and other mechanisms for reporting through usaspending.gov to report out for the public to learn how their money was being spent. And that's Michael Horowitz, the chairman of the PRAC. I used my grant money to buy a new motorcycle. And Justin, is this a broader problem than just pandemic spending relief? I mean, it seems like this is an issue that they grapple with all the time. The pandemic really shined a light on how agencies are really inconsistent in how they apply guidance from the White House Office of Management and Budget in terms of award descriptions. They're supposed to detail the purpose of the award, the performance goals, and the intended beneficiaries of the funding. Comptroller General Gene Dodaro echoed uh, Horowitz's concerns about how agencies are reporting their spending data. The Government Accountability Office is, is recommending Congress reinstate requirements for inspectors general to actually review agency submissions to usaspending.gov. That requirement has actually expired under the Data Act that was passed in 2014, and he's urging Congress to reinstate it so they can look at some of these issues closer. And unless Congress reinstates that requirement, very few IGs will audit the data. The basic lesson learned out of all this is better categorizations, and I think we've learned some things on that, particularly not only coding the, the spending data but the procurement data. But the main thing is the quality, the completeness, and timeliness are still major issues for all federal spending. And that's Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, who runs the Government Accountability Office. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so, really, so far we've identified two big problems. One, the grant descriptions were so vague that money probably shouldn't have been obligated for them in the first place. And then the data that agencies filed about their spending 
is kind of vague and incomplete. Any other issues that came up in this hearing? Yeah, b- both Horowitz and Dodaro identified the lack of reporting on subrecipient data as a major challenge in tracking both COVID-19 relief funds and, and funding in general. You know, Horace described how many programs you can see where agencies distribute the money in the first instance, but often that is not where the money stops. It goes further downstream to other recipients of these grants. And Horace said there's really no information about that flow of money available to, to the public and to oversight offices without asking for it, of course. And the PRAC is also focused on how there are gaps in reporting back from grant and other assistant recipients this became a major issue with the Paycheck Protection Program, an $800 billion program administered by the Small Business Administration that saved, you know, countless businesses across the country. But Horowitz says it's difficult to get exact information on what recipients did with that money. One of the big questions we hear all the time is, so the PPP program, $800 billion in the Payment Protection Program, how did that impact employment? We don't know. The agency doesn't know because the information isn't being collected. And I think one other issue with the payroll protection plan is that it expanded past payroll that it was originally and when it first launched, and they expanded what people could use the money for. And maybe that's one of the issues why the recipients have trouble reporting it, and maybe there was no mechanism for them to report it. So, golly, it's a little discouraging. This group of oversight professionals, then, what are they recommending Congress do about it? At this point, the money's all spent. Yeah, well, Dodaro also pointed at the SBA and, and said the agency kind of rebuffed GAO's initial recommendations to set up an anti-fraud framework and, and, and more uh, and stronger internal financial controls for some of these programs. And so GAO is, is recommending a range of measures agencies can take going forward to guard against improper payments, and including ensuring that programs that will distribute more than $100 million annually have more reporting requirements in terms of you know, fraud and, 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 and financial control measures. GAO is also recommending Congress establish a, an analytics center of excellence to aid the oversight community in identifying improper payments and fraud across government. And then the Darrow's team is urging that chief financial officers have more oversight of agency improper risk assessment sorry, agency improper payment risk assessments and estimates. So G- Dodaro and GAO are really recommending a range of things that Congress can do to guard against, you know, future crises where money needs to get out the door fast and agencies need to guard against fraud to ensure it goes to the right place. I think the lesson to me out of this thing is that it's better if Congress, in legislating future emergency spending, make it very clear about how the agency is to accept recommendations from the oversight community and get some help because we all have collectively lots of experience. We could have helped them avoid a lot of these pitfalls, and they need to aggressively implement and deal with these fundamental management weaknesses ahead of time. Again, Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. And Justin, aside from federal spending data, that whole issue, what about identity verification to make sure that the federal, state and local agencies, the partners in all of this spending, are themselves sending the money to the right people as the federal originators of the money intend? Yeah, that also came up at last week's Senate hearing. Jason Miller is the Deputy Director for Management at OMB. And he says his office is pushing login.gov 
to as many agencies as possible. Login.gov is a secure single sign-on service for users to access government benefits and services, citizens to access those benefits and services. It's developed and managed through the General Services Administration. It's already used by a couple dozen agencies today, including the Small Business Administration. Uh, Of course, the IRS recently said it would adopt Login.gov after it backed away from those plans to use a facial recognition company. So last fall, GSA received $197 million from the Technology Modernization Fund to continue beefing up Login.gov. And Miller from OMB says Login.gov is is a big priority for his team. It really needs to be strengthened so it can be used more broadly across government. Right now, we largely leave agencies and states to their own devices to determine how best to do these. We need stronger tools in place on identity verification. That's why we're investing in login as a potential option. And that's Jason Miller, the Deputy Director for Management at the OMB. I got to tell you, Justin, uh, we're our Justin Doubleday. I got to tell you, there are a couple of federal agencies where you reapply for a thing, in this case, a one of the trusted traveler cards, the global entry card, that invokes login.gov, and it works seamlessly. You don't have to do anything. It just says you are now going to login.gov. You don't even leave the site you're on. So I'm not quite sure what the rocket science is in all of this. But I wanted to ask you, listening in on that hearing, what was the tone and tenor of the members of Congress listening to this? Were they sympathetic? Were they outraged? Were they scratching their heads? What was the reaction? I think they're sympathetic to the oversight community and even to the agencies because Congress recognizes that they appropriated this money really quickly uh, to get it out the door fast during a a pandemic, during a crisis that where people just needed money, businesses needed money to continue operating and not not go under during an extraordinary situation. But what the oversight community is telling them is that in the next crisis, make sure that you have more adequate controls in place to ensure that you're not seeing, you know, tens of billions of dollars in fraud and and already confirmed more than $100 billion in improper payments. It seems like they almost should have a standing mechanism for this that just simply gets invoked every time there's one of these spending bills because they used to happen every 50 years. Now they're happening about every 10 years, and in the pandemic, every year. Yeah, and, and that, that's really what, what GAO's uh, Gene Dodaro and, and others said is, you know, when you're going to put together these emergency spending bills, include strong oversight measures in there, strong fraud controls measures in there as well. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. 
And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there. Sharing plates with... Just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Hey, hon. What you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.